Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. Our guest today is Jesse Woolley Wilson, CEO, President, and Chair of Dreambox Learning. For more than two decades, she has worked in education technology space to support schools in improving learning and life outcomes for K-12 students. Dreambox's pioneering learning platform has won more than 40 top education and technology industry awards and is used by 200,000 teachers and nearly 5 million students in all 50 states and throughout Canada and Mexico. Prior to joining Dreambox, Jesse served as president of Blackboard's K-12 group and LeapFrog Schoolhouse, the K-12 division of LeapFrog Enterprises. She also has held leadership positions at collegeboard.com, the interactive division of the College Board, and at Kaplan, a leading test prep company. Jesse has received many national and regional awards for innovative leadership in education and technology. Locally, she has been recognized by Seattle Business Magazine, GeekWire, and the Puget Sound Business Journal. And she has also been featured in the New York Times, CNBC, NPR, and Business Insider, among many other leading news publications. Jesse supports our community by serving on several boards, including Rosetta Stone, Western Governors University, Boeing Employee Credit Union, and the Pacific Science Center, to name a few. She holds an MBA from the Harvard Business School, and her undergraduate degree in English is from the University of Virginia. So welcome to the Leadership Playbook, Jesse. It's so great to have you with us. We appreciate it. It's a great honor to have you speaking with us today. My pleasure. Let me start off by just maybe asking some questions about Dreambox. You provide a digital solution for K-8 math. And with the pandemic, we have been so concerned about the effectiveness of online learning for so many students during the pandemic. Are we right to think that this has been Dreambox's biggest moment and your company has played a pivotal role in K-12 learning over what is now almost a year of the pandemic and students studying remotely? I think that the COVID-19 crisis was a big moment for kids, for parents, for families, for communities, and certainly for districts and schools, as well as companies like Dreambox, who make it our business to support student learning and to try to cultivate student success. So while we definitely saw an expansion in our business, it is with a heavy heart that that happens because we know that there's a lot of suffering even among the people who have the most privilege. It was really, really hard these past several months. So we navigated that by doing several things. One of them is that we opened up our platform for free through the end of the school year for both schools and parents so that they at least had some additional support and didn't have to worry about affordability. We also added some resources to parents and teachers alike about how to navigate this forced distance learning that was thrust upon them. People just didn't feel like they had enough resources. The one thing that we really kept our focus on were the things that we could control amidst so much chaos. And we kept our K through eight students engaged in learning because it was kind of fun. You know, it's a gamified environment, and even though it's serious learning and it's very challenging, students enjoy it. They're very engaged in it. And then finally, we added some new professional development modules, not so much about how to be successful in Dreambox, 
but how to survive and thrive in a forced distance learning environment where the relationship between learner and learning guardian was changing, where the relationship between the home-based learning guardian and the school-based learning guardian was under new pressures. And so we wanted to support both teachers and parents and students through this, really it was a typhoon. So even though it was very challenging, we feel like we added some value. We gave parents and kids some sense of agency when so much was uncertain around them. And we're proud of that, although it's not the way that we would like to grow. Clearly, there's been a lot of suffering in these past several months. Well, those are some great examples of how your company has really stepped up there. Let me drill down a little bit, be more specific. You know, one of the concerns with the online environment has been the impact on underserved communities and how that impacts the learning of students in those communities. So what has Dreambox been seeing there and how are you responding to that issue? This is a very difficult problem that you're pointing to and one that didn't exist only because of the pandemic. This has been a problem that has existed for a long time before the pandemic, but it was accelerated and was deepened as a result of COVID. So there's no doubt that the gap between the haves and the have-nots, so to speak, widened because of this crisis. And we think that there's a lot that has to be done at the national, state, and local level to make sure that every child has access to a great learning opportunity. So we believe fundamentally, I should say at DreamWorks, that talent exists everywhere, but opportunity does not. And the bridge between talent and opportunity starts with education, access to a great education. So at the national level, we think it's time that we ask if kids have food, we ask if kids have electricity, we ask if kids have have gas. You know, we need to make sure that we ask if kids have access to broadband. It should be seen as a utility. You know, what we saw was that schools would open up Wi-Fi capability and parents would literally drive to the school parking lot so that their kids could do their classwork in their cars. I mean, imagine that. Kids who didn't have access at home had to get in their cars if they had them or take a bus in many cases and go into a parking lot and sit on a bench or sit in a car to gain access to broadband. That's unacceptable. And we have to do something. There's too many stories about that. So we think that nationally there should be policy. There should be permanent funding to make sure that students in rural communities or indigenous communities, or in urban communities, have access not only to broadband, but to adequate broadband and to devices so that they can have a digital experience and not have less opportunity for learning. At the state level, I think we need to develop capacity plans for digital capabilities and distance learning, and we need to practice them. Like, think about it. We practice for earthquakes. We practice for hurricanes. Why don't we practice for school disruptions? So that when it happens, we have a muscle built already. We have protocols. We have expectations. Everybody knows how the role is going to change. We don't do it. I think we should have a day, maybe once a month, once a quarter, where we have digital learning days. So that when typhoons like the pandemic happen, we have some muscle memory and we know what to do. We don't thrust kids and families and teachers in crisis. That means that we have to train differently. That means we have to have state planning protocols. And I would even endorse linking state funding to readiness, to readiness practice for disrupted learning. So I think we're ready for that now. We've learned a lot. It was too painful. It was going to be painful, but it didn't have to be as painful as it was. Then finally, at the local level, I think we need to move from the idea and the aspiration of job-embedded teacher professional development 
to the reality of job embedded teacher professional development so that teachers have on-demand support and resources to help all kinds of kids in all kinds of circumstances get through their learning challenges and support teachers as they need to be supported. Digital learning is no substitute for the magic that happens, the art that happens with teachers. And we need to make sure that they're prepared for this. That means that universities and colleges have to prepare teachers for the environments that they're likely to step into. And it means that that training has to be ongoing and in my mind, job embedded. So that while teachers are using solutions like Dreambox Learning, if they get stuck, there's something on demand that helps them get unstuck quickly so that their confidence never, never fades, even though they're working with new solutions like Dreambox Learning. And then finally, I would say that we need new models of learning. And I know that there's been this emergence of these learning pods where usually families in more affluent environments get together, they agreed on some COVID protocols, and they created small micro-schooling. There are a lot of kids that didn't have access to that. Maybe their parents drove buses, or maybe they didn't have parents in the home. There are a lot of homeless kids. There are kids that need to be able to access solutions like Dreambox Learning at community centers, at libraries, at other places, so that we can make sure the community has a sense of readiness, as well as the schools and districts. Great. Thank you. So Dreambox has been very focused, math, K-8. to Just curious if you're thinking about going out beyond the M in STEM or going into other grade levels, even post-secondary education? (laughs) You know, Dreambox was designed to be a, let me say, an age, grade, and content agnostic platform. So while people know us for math, the intelligent adaptive technology has application well beyond mathematics, and we have prototypes in other disciplines. But we wanted to make sure that teachers respected this solution, that administrators had confidence in this solution, and that parents trusted the solution. So we focused in the short term on mathematics. But essentially, what we are in the business of is helping kids to learn how to learn so that they can develop the skills that we think they need in an international, you know, globalized, technology-driven world. And we know that kids these days are going to be burdened with remaking their skill sets over and over again. So many of the things that are taught in schools today, robots might be doing tomorrow. So what's the point of only teaching kids specific skills in specific areas? We literally want to cultivate lifelong learners. We want to help kids learn how to learn so that they have a sense of agency when they learn new skills and develop new capabilities. And so while we're focused on math in the short term, intelligent adaptive learning, this platform we hope is the first step in redefining and recreating what the future of learning can look like for all kids, regardless of what zip code they happen to live in. So yes, it's true that it can go to multiple uh, disciplines. And yes, we have prototypes that show that we can extend it beyond math. And we wanna make sure that we continue to earn the confidence, support, and trust of students, teachers, and administrators so that they continue to invest in us before we expand. So I I think it's very likely, we've been at this for, I've been here for 10 years, and I think the moment for moving into different disciplines is closer rather than farther away because we have a lot of efficacy studies from Harvard and Stanford that show that you're not, you're really not martyring your child or your teacher by introducing them to Dreambox. So I think we've earned 
some credibility to extend it into a different place. But our success really is going to be defined by students who, when they encounter uh, short-term failure, they remember their experience in Dreambox, where we tell them that getting an answer wrong is the first step to getting it right. We learn from our mistakes. We form hypotheses. We try. We discover. And we adapt. And when we adapt, that is how learning happens. We don't want kids to fear making mistakes. We want kids to lean into those mistakes, to dissect them, and to learn from them so that as they move forward, they can apply the learning from that temporary setback. Makes sense. Absolutely. So let me switch gears a little bit and talk about COVID-19 and how that's impacting how you run the business. Early in the pandemic, you know, you don't have to worry so much about hiring new people and the culture of the company and so on. But as it stretches on and on and on, vacancies pop up, new hires have to be decided, you have to worry about the company culture. So how has Dreambox been handling these challenges and other challenges that COVID is bringing to how we run our businesses and how we get business done? You know, in March, in early March, I had a meeting with our board of directors and I told them that between illness just um, a lot of women having special burdens and having to leave their workforce to take care of kids at home and just tumult as a result of COVID that we should anticipate up to a 20% turnover rate. And we have, you know, less than 5% at Dreambox Learning right now. But I told them that it was going to go up exponentially. We needed to be prepared for that. And to our delight, we literally lost three people out of 260 people during COVID. And that was remarkable. And I think that goes to culture. I got in front of the company in early March and I said, we're going to live by our values and we're going to take care of each other. We're going to take care of ourselves. That's the first. Second is we're going to take care of our customers. And if we do that, then we will do the best thing to take care of the company in that order. We're going to take care of each other. We're going to take care of our customers. We're going to take care of the company. And I said, that's all I know. I wish I could tell you a lot more than I know. And I know that it's probably a leadership flaw for me to tell you that I don't know 99%, but I've never seen COVID before. You guys are really smart. If I were to tell you that I knew things, you wouldn't believe me anyway. So I'm hoping we're going to move from quarterly all hands to monthly all hands. And with every month, I hope the 99% that I don't know starts to shrink and the 1% that I do know starts to grow. And I will continue to tell you what I know and what I don't know. And so I think that COVID tested our values. It tested our resolve. It tested our culture. And I think because we all got through it, we got stronger. And the stories that our employees will tell you are the thing that creates positive gravity for the best minds and the best talent in this space. It is amazing how many people choose to leave more lucrative positions at much more prestigious and well-known firms in order to come to a little company called Dreambox Learning, because they're concerned about making this world a better place. I tell people, if you step off from what you're going to do to come to Dreambox, you have an opportunity to do well in order to do good and to scale goodness while you do it, to make the world better, one child, one school, one district at a time. So our company values are things like constantly learning, be adaptive, customer-centric, do well to do good, effort with impact, and my favorite, benevolent friction. We like to be hard on ideas, but soft on people, because we think our work is so important to unlock the learning potential of every child that we have to leave our ego in the parking lot, and we have to subject what we think are great ideas to the scrutiny of people who share our vision 
for the future for kids and make that make what we think is a great idea even better. It's a benevolent friction. I think all of these were tested at very high levels and it was hard. It wasn't easy. It was hard, but we got through it. And I think getting through it, we're a stronger culture. We're evolving. We're changing. Cultures aren't static, but I feel like we are in a great position now, even though we're interviewing people on zoom instead of in person or meeting them in coffee shops to test what people care about. We want and deserve the best talent, the best hearts, and the best minds. And we are never going to lower our standards, even though we're up against some formidable competition here in the greater Seattle area. When we get to the other side of COVID, how do you think it will have changed day-to-day operations? What are some things that will be different as part of our new normal post-pandemic, do you think? Especially at Dreambox. Yeah, so at Dreambox... We didn't know what was going to happen. We do a lot of our teacher professional development in person. Well, that wasn't possible. So we moved it to remote and we didn't know what was going to happen. And we have gotten much, much better at delivering teacher professional development remotely. Now, I believe that there's always a magic that comes with human contact. I think through proximity, that's how we become empathetic with people and people's lives that we don't understand. But we were tested, and I think there are some things that we thought had to be done in person, like recruiting, that we know through technologies like Zoom, we can do very, very well, even if it's not quite as well as what we might achieve in person. So we used to go to a lot of education conferences to meet district superintendents. We don't do that anymore. We have Zoom calls. We used to deliver teacher professional development at schools. We don't do that anymore. We do remote adult learning. We used to have in-person company meetings so that we could renew our commitment to kids and we could raise our hands in the air when I ask every year how many people at Dreambox used to be former educators or former educators. And, you know, last year that number was over 40 percent. So we're going to do that on Zoom this year and have a, you know, a virtual hand raise. So there are things that will change as we approach our new normal, but what won't change are our philosophy about learning, our company values, and our commitment to make sure that every child, regardless of what they look like, what zip code they happen to be born in, has access to an excellent learning opportunity that engages them, that is personalized, that inspires them to be all that they can be. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. So in the midst of the pandemic, we've also had the Black Lives Matter movement. The tech sector has always been criticized for lack of racial diversity. So how has Dreambox as a tech company responded to Black Lives Matter? And has it changed the company and the way you're approaching things from a personnel or strategy standpoint? So as you can imagine, I get this question a lot, partly because we're a technology company, and I think partly because I'm an African-American leader of a technology company. Mm -hmm. And it's a hard question to answer because at Dreambox, we don't think diversity is something that has to be managed. We think diversity is something that should be leveraged. We think we are stronger and better when we have diverse voices, and it aligns so beautifully with our company values. Benevolent friction cultivates differences in opinions diversity of opinions. And what we want to do is harness collective wisdom by inviting diverse voices to the table. And so 
I think that despite that commitment to diversity, big D diversity, cultural, racial, age, everything's under the umbrella. Despite that, we did make some enhancements. So the first thing that we did is I hosted a moderated session on Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham City Jail. And to my surprise, very few people had ever read that piece. It's something that I read every MLK day. And we had a really great conversation about racial justice and its connection to DEI. We had a great conversation about what Martin Luther King calls the white moderates, about it's one thing to sit on the sideline and and say that you're not uh, prejudiced. It's quite another to be anti-racist. And we had a rich conversation, which resonated with the team, about the common connection between raising digital natives and raising anti-racist natives. We all have a role to play here to make sure that we leverage diversity. And I hope this nation wakes up one day and sees that we are uniquely positioned in the world to leverage a rich and powerful diversity that will help us help other people fulfill their human potential and in doing so make this world a better place for everybody. So it's a hard thing. So we did that, the moderated session, and it was a very affecting session. There were a lot of tears shed in that. The other thing that we did is we started a first Tuesday meeting where we talk about white privilege and we talk about anti-racist behavior. We talk about what it looks like. We talk about bias. And it's led by our chief learning officer who happens to be a white male. And I actually found out about this after it started. So one of the things that I'm so proud about at DreamBox is that the diversity culture and honoring difference is something that is embraced and has very, very little to do with me. They started this without telling me about it. They started it for everybody at the company. I was invited to something that was well planned out. I didn't even know it was being planned out. And it is the most well-attended meeting in the history of the company. And it happens every first Tuesday. People are leaning into it because people want to understand. And so they have, in addition to that, an online resource center with books and articles and testimonials and stories so that we can always stay close to the heart of things versus the head of things. Okay, great. Thank you for that. So let me switch gears a little bit and talk about you know leadership in general with you as a leader. First question I have to ask as the dean of the business school with 1,500 business students, I'll get in trouble if I don't ask this question. You know, what advice do you have for recent college grads, particularly in this pandemic period? What do you know now that you wish you knew when you graduated from the University of Virginia? I wish somebody had pulled me aside by my earlobe and told me when I was at UVA that even if I thought I understood what I wanted, I probably didn't. And that even though I'm a planner, you can't plan all elements and all aspects of life. Sometimes you have to live life on life's terms. I wish somebody had told me to look at my life and my career as a novel rather than a single chapter. And what I would have understood then is that some chapters are hard and some are easy. Some chapters are thick and others are thin. Some chapters are characterized by joy Others are characterized by toil and tragedy, but no single chapter defines us because we are writing a novel. If I had known that, I would have recognized when I went to Wall Street to work in banking, that that was just a chapter 
and it didn't have to define me. I wasn't fed by my work in banking. And so I started tutoring kids in Harlem. And that is what brought me to this career choice. If somebody had told me that I was writing a novel, I would have done that earlier. I would have followed my heart. I would have followed the thing that I'm passionate about, that I'm willing to do when it's super, super hard, when the chances of success are very, very low and I still do it with joy. That wasn't banking for me. What I'm doing is that for me. And I probably wouldn't have waited a handful of years to step off. I would have come to this work earlier. So what I would tell your students is don't put so much pressure on yourself to have everything figured out, what you're supposed to do the year after you graduate, when you're supposed to get married, when you're supposed to have kids, how old you'll be when you're a CEO. I would encourage them to think about impact in every chapter of your life. How can you have impact, impact on others, impact on the world, impact on your personal growth? And just know that one single chapter will never define you. It's going to be the whole corpus of your life's work. Your novel, as Aristotle said, happiness can only be defined at the end of one's life, not in the middle and not at the beginning. I wish someone had pulled me by the earlobe and told me I was writing a novel and not writing a chapter. Great. I love that analogy with the novel and chapters of life and so forth. That's great advice for our students. So as you already mentioned, you are a black female leader at a tech company. And obviously that tech is well known to be dominated by men. Can you tell us about some of the challenges you faced in your career and your rise to the CEO position? Some of the lessons you learned from your personal experiences and how you might have turned those to apply them to Dreambox and make it a more diverse and inclusive organization? So I think the main lesson is that when I was in business school, I convinced myself that as a leader, I should separate my personal life from my professional life. That's what good leaders do. And what I've learned at Dreambox through many chapters is that that's nearly impossible. When I go to try to raise money and I'm sitting in the reception area of a very famous venture capital firm, and I'm asked to go get coffee by another person, another CEO who was also there to raise money, it's very difficult to separate that from what I do at Dreambox Learning. So when that happened, I literally didn't realize that this gentleman was speaking to me. And I looked over my shoulder to find out who he was speaking to, because I would have liked to have a cup of coffee as well. And when I saw no one behind me, I realized he was speaking to me. And so I told him, this is moments before I went in to present to the partners. What I told him was that, unfortunately, I was unable to help him find coffee. But when he did find it, I would appreciate it if he would bring me back a cup and that I took it black. A few minutes later, I was ushered into a big boardroom with about a dozen partners, and I was asked to present Dreambox Learning. And I was very irritated still by that experience. And I remember changing my opening to something like, you all should invest in Dreambox because what just happened to me in your reception area should never happen to anyone. And what happened to me in your reception area happened to me because of how I look and what expectations people had of me because of how I look. And if we're successful at Dreambox to unlock the learning potential of every child, then it really won't matter what they look like or where they live. We'll be thinking about what they can do to help us improve society 
to help gain access to opportunity, to help us create the great society. And because that's happening right here and you all don't even know it, you don't realize how important it is to have somebody who looks like me at this table now so that when CEOs present you all and the CEOs see the diversity that is available to us. Think about all the talent you're not tapping because you don't have diversity in your ranks. Think about the message that you're sending to people who come in here when there isn't diversity, unless they're secretarial staff. And so I linked it to our mission and I had a chance to get funding from them. I think that my probability went down precipitously after this opening, but it turned out that it worked out okay for us. But I can't separate what happens in my personal life with my role as CEO of Dreambox because the world won't allow me to do that. However, I see myself is one thing, and it is not always in alignment with how the world sees me. And so I have to carry my personal experience into my leadership. It's not an option for someone like me to separate the two. Right now, what do you think the biggest challenge for a business leader is, and how are you approaching that issue? How's it impacting you and Dreambox? Ten years ago, I might have said the biggest challenge is the fit between your product or solution and the marketplace opportunity. To make sure you're aware of that, to make sure you stay close to that, and to make sure you understand the scaling challenges that come with that. Now I have a different answer. I think the biggest challenge for me and for all leaders is to recruit develop and inspire high performance teams, full stop, to recruit, develop, and hire high performance teams because the rubric is changing and individuals, the talent pool is changing it. I have to answer questions now about our diversity strategy at Dreambox. I have to answer questions now about how people will grow and develop if they come to Dreambox. I have to answer questions now about what our strategies are to advance people's careers. I have to answer questions now about our attitudes about social movements, like the one we spoke about earlier, Black Lives Matter. This was never done when I got out of school or college or business school. All of the leverage was on the side of the employer. And what I've come to appreciate is that that continuum is changing. And increasingly, there's more leverage on the supply side of talent. And the best employers of the future are going to be those that understand how to hire, develop, and inspire high-performance teams. Because if you can hire, develop, and inspire them, you're much more likely to retain them. And this business, especially a technology-driven business, is completely dependent upon talent. So the notion that the C-suite is the most important group of people Those days are long gone. Mm -hmm. The most important people in companies are those people who are most proximate to the market, to the customers we serve. Now, how do you see the interaction of, say, more power on the supply side when it comes to the labor market, yet the challenges of diversity and bringing opportunity to everybody? How do you suspect that is going to coalesce and come together going forward in the next decade or so? Yeah, a lot of people worry, oh, I can't find women, I can't find black people, I can't find, and I always say, well, where are you looking? If you see me as an anomaly, you are not looking in the right places. If you think I'm the best that there is to offer among people of color, 
oh my goodness, you have so much to learn. I am very mediocre compared to some of the amazing talent that's out there. And so if you only go to Harvard and to Yale and to Cal to find your talent, you're missing out on huge opportunity, rich talent, huge capabilities. And if you believe that the people who buy your product aren't going to increasingly insist that the product or solution that you bring to market is empathetic and relevant to how they live their lives, then you're wrong. The best way to win is through proximity. Proximity breeds deeper understanding and deeper understanding breeds empathy. What the market is going to reward in the future are empathetic products and solutions that are relevant to how people live and what they aspire to. And next time you have that conversation with someone, make sure you send them to Seattle U. We've got a great, <laughs> great group of diverse students here. That's right. One final question. What are you most proud of in your leadership journey? And, you know, is there a story behind that that can illustrate that for our listeners? I am most proud of what I have been able to learn from a, a very diverse group of supporters, mentors, and sponsors. I think sometimes we can fall into a trap of thinking that our best support is going to come from people who look like us or who live like us. I've had the luck, the good fortune of working for so many people who may have seen a spark in me that I didn't see and encouraged me to take some risk that I might not otherwise have taken. And so when I was in banking, I used to work for a woman. Her name is Joanne Gallo. And she told me that I was good at this business thing. You know, I was an English major from UVA, couldn't get a job. I went to the career office. I said, what should I do? And they said, you should, if you don't know what you should do, you should go to a training program. I said, okay, well, what kind of training programs should I consider? Like, well, do you know anything about what, what do you like? And I'm like, I want to go to New York City. I want to go to jazz clubs. I want to be in Gotham. I want to, okay, well, why don't you look at, you know, bank training programs in Manhattan? I'm like, Gets me to Manhattan, sure. Went through a bank training program, did pretty well. Ended up working for Joanne Gallo on a third world debt restructuring. And she said, you're good at this business thing. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm going to get a PhD. I'm going I'm to go to Yale and get a PhD in literature. And she's like, you should think about getting an MBA. So I dropped it. She came back a month later and said, have you thought about an MBA? I said, Joanne, what do you, like, if I leave, you know, this whole thing is going to collapse. Like, I'm not going to get an MBA. I'm going to stay here. She was really supportive. I loved working with her. You know, I had a chance to travel internationally. I was in Gotham, like, don't rock it. Everything's great. And she said, I think you're very good at this, but I did pretty well before I met you. I don't think things are going to collapse if you go to business school for a while. So I said, all right, I'll apply to business school. So I came back with applications for PACE, and NYU, and she said, I will not write a letter of recommendation for PACE or NYU unless you first apply to Harvard Business School and Penn and a few others, Stanford. And I was like, Joanne, there's no way I'm going to get into Harvard Business School. So what, why waste the time? It was not pragmatic. And she just walked out of my office. So I applied to Harvard Business School. I got a call from the admissions director congratulating me on getting in. And I told her that I was going to defer. So about seven minutes later, Joanne was in my office saying, you know, I got the strangest call from the admissions director at Harvard Business School. And she's under the impression that you want to defer admission. 
And I told her that couldn't be the case, but I would check in, look, look into it. And I said, well, Joanne, you know, it's a, and she's like, you need to take this opportunity. So I took the opportunity. It really changed the trajectory of my life. I remember taking Joanne out to dinner when I was in Manhattan another time. And I said, I just didn't see what you saw. I think that I can do some good, even with a business degree. How can I ever repay you? She said, you will find yourself likely in a position where you can help other people who don't see their spark. Don't focus on how you can repay me. What you should do is pay it forward. So I literally believe that the work that I do at DreamBots, the work I did at LeapFrog and some other companies that I worked at, is about seeking the spark in others and making sure that not only the world sees the spark, but more importantly, that the individual themselves see their own spark. And so that's the business I'm in. It might be math, but I literally feel like I'm in the business of discovering sparks, shining light on sparks, and leveraging sparks in all corners of the world. Well, that is a great story about Joanne. And thank you so much. That's a terrific way to end this conversation, Jesse. Really appreciate you being with us today, and you've given us some great insights and things to think about. And good luck to you and Dreambox in the post-pandemic world that we're going to be in soon. Well, thank you very much. It was my pleasure for joining. You've been listening to The Leadership Playbook, the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albers School of Business and Economics. Thanks for listening.